had a New Testament reading at the uh, beginning from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 7, and uh, you'll see why that's appropriate towards the end of our time this morning. Right now we're going to remind ourselves of what the third commandment actually is. We've been looking at a series in the Ten Commandments, and we've got to the, uh, the third one. Let me remind you uh, of the first two as well. God said to uh, Israel, verse 6 of Deuteronomy 5, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We um, saw that that means that uh, our hearts can't be divided. We can't um, worship two different gods. We will always say that something in our lives is the most important thing. God says, it must be me, and the rest of your life will fall into place. And he says, second commandment, verse 8, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. We saw there that um, making pictures of God actually always deceives us about God. If we're going to worship God as the only God of our lives, then we need to recognize that he reveals himself by speaking to us because that's how he shows us his heart. Then verse 11. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you've helped us in our studies of your word up to now. Thank you that... Uh, uh, you promise to be with us as your people. We ask, Lord, so that we may know you more, so that our lives may be more complete, so that we may be saved from dishonouring you and damaging ourselves, that you would help us to understand this third word from yourself and to put it into practice in our lives. Please be with us, Lord each as individuals and together as your people, for your glory's sake. Amen. Reality is not what it used to be, is it? Well, for instance, was the BBC TV series Walking with Dinosaurs true? Or not? A proportion of the scientific experts were actually furious, saying it distorted uh, the truth, portrayed wild guesses as if they were established facts. But millions of us saw those dinosaurs, didn't we? We know their skin colour now. We know their calls. We know for certain now that a meteorite did wipe out the dinosaurs because we saw it happen. We saw that poor little baby Tyrannosaurus rex blown away by the explosion. Or did we? fact is, you see, that modern film technology, even if it doesn't quite work on our laptop uh, uh, this morning, um, 
modern technology at its best, anyway, is now so advanced that almost anything could be presented to us as real. Any of us who saw the amazing effects in The Lord of the Rings, for instance, knows that. There's a film out at the moment called Simone, which is um, uh, exploring the possibility that someone could create a computer-generated actress whom everyone actually believes is real. And then she actually becomes real. Or does she? There was a time when reality was, was just hard facts. When we watched um, uh, fantasy films or whatever, we knew it was obvious they were complete fantasies. That's what it used to be like. But reality now is much more difficult to spot. Actually, uh, more and more, um, people are wanting to play with reality, manipulate reality, redefine reality. Reality is what you want it to be, they say. Pioneering program of that sort is, uh, of course, the X-Files, Mulder and Scully constantly discovering things that are, that are beyond the realms of conventional science, hidden from the public by um, uh, secret authorities. Uh, uh, it's actually very important that Mulder and Scully, Scully are, are um, um, always discovering different new things, not one single reality. It's not like they're piecing together uh, a picture of what the world is really like. Rather, in fact, they're just in all sorts of ways, every week, trying to blow apart the world that we, the, the way that we think it is. So the X-Files has no interest in actually uh, uh, portraying a coherent view of the truth. The truth is out there, yes, that's its strapline. But actually, they play with lots and lots of different truths. And you can believe or disbelieve whatever you like. The only constant message is that reality is different from what you think it is. Each of us has permission, then, in today's world, to create a world that we will believe in, that will be real for me. The manic street preachers proclaim, this is my truth, tell me yours. And nowhere is, I think, that, that more obvious than if you talk to people about their views of God. God today is an almost, he's an almost infinitely plastic concept. We're free to decide entirely what we believe about God, what, what our reality is. And so is everybody else. Maybe, many people say, there are as many truths about God as there are religions in the world. Why should we be confined to one uh, straitjacketing reality? I, I want to suggest to you that that actually doesn't work. Actually, real reality has a disconcerting way of catching up with us. Of course, if God was not real, then we could fantasize him about, about him as, uh, uh, as much as we like. If he's just a virtual person, we can chop and change between all sorts of different views of, of God as easily as we can switch from one channel to the other on the television. But what if he's real? 
What if he's as real as the person sitting next to you? See, we don't have the liberty to decide for ourselves what the person next to us is like. Because they may have something to say about it. God is that sort of real. God is solid, unchanging. God actually created reality. God is the foundation of reality. God is the most profound reality of all. We, we actually instinctively know that there are some realities you don't mess with. I mean, um, uh, cars on the motorway are real. Someone may fancy deciding that they're not, but if they stand in the fast lane of the motorway, they'll soon find out whether they're right or not. That's the sort of real that God is. Because of that, that's why he wrote down the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. In, in the biblical world, a name wasn't just a convenient tag so that people could call to you across the street. Your name conveyed your, your character, your nature. It was a statement about you. We'll see in a minute, God, God revealed, when God revealed his name to his people, he reveals his, his nature to them. When he says, do not misuse my name, he's saying something far more profound than, than uh, don't use the name of God as a swear word. He is saying, don't trivialize who I am. That's, 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 that's his third warning to us. Make sure you worship only me, he said in the first commandment, because that's the only way you will find completeness, find out what you were made for. Make sure you don't try and construct some false image of me, he said in the second commandment. Listen to me. And in the third commandment, he says, make sure that you don't treat my character as something trivial, something that you can play with, something that you can make up for yourself. It's not the way I am. It's not the way the world works. One ancient translation actually says, do not, the, 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 the translates this as, do not hold... God's name trivially or lightly or futilely. If you watch religious pundits on television or listen to them on the radio, you'll often say, hear them say after a while, I like to think that God is so and so. And this commandment says it's, what you like to think is irrelevant. What a dismissive view of God that is. The Bible insists God has revealed who he is. It is our duty to know him and to honour him as he really is, if we are to love him. Just as it is our duty to know and honour the person sitting next to us, as they really are, if we have any interest in them at all. First thing we need to look at then this morning 
is what is God like? We've said already, haven't we, that he reveals what he is like in his name. What does that name mean? You see the NIV here uses the phrase, the Lord. Did you notice that um, uh, in, in uh, verse 11 there, the uh, word Lord has the letters all capitalized. That's a convention that the NIV uses to indicate that the uh, precise word underlying that is a rather mysterious one. It's represented in the Hebrew Bible by four letters, Y-H-W-H. And uh, in the earliest Hebrew writings, there were no vowel sounds written down, so we can only make a guess about how they were to pronounce that word, Y-H-W-H. Jews, um, when they read their Old Testament, were so in awe of this name that they opted, in fact, to use another name for God whenever this name uh, appeared so that they wouldn't break the third commandment as they saw it in order to remind themselves that they would use another word for God, when they started putting in the vowels on this word, this name, Y-H-W-H, they added different vowels underneath than the ones they they really should have done in order to remind themselves, not to say his actual name, but to say another word, Adonai, uh, instead. English translators misinterpreted that when they were reading the Old, uh, uh, the Old Testament. Hence, uh, in the King James, you will find he is called Jehovah. That's definitely the wrong set of vowels. Probably, most likely, the name was supposed to be pronounced Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean, then? Well, the first time God specifically announces himself as Yahweh is in Exodus chapter 3, and we um, perhaps should just turn back to that. It's on page 60 in the, the church Bibles. It's the famous story of the burning bush. Moses sees this bush which is burning and not being consumed and he goes over to have a look at it and he meets God. God says he is to be called Yahweh, explaining, I am who I am, in verse 14. He tells tells Moses, tell the Israelites, I am has sent you. And... uh, Uh, Later on, we see that Yahweh is a word very, very closely related to the verb to be. I am. Bit of an enigmatic answer, isn't it, really? What's this revealed about God? I mean, scholars have argued long and hard what it actually means. I think the best answer to the question comes in God's own description of his character. The first thing that he says to Moses, um, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
The Lord said, verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. I have come down to rescue them. He says, I'm the God who made promises to Abraham. I made a covenant with Abraham, and I have stood by that covenant in the next generation, Isaac's generation, and the next generation, and the next I am the God, he says, whose covenant faithfulness is coupled with a deep, compassionate love. I am Yahweh. That's what I'm like. I am who I will be forever. The same God who declared himself to Abraham and who now is fulfilling my promises, my passionate, faithful commitment to my people as I come down to rescue them. I make promises and I stick by them. I am the sovereign Lord. I can do that. My love is eternal, he says. Another moment in the the book of Exodus also helps us to understand the, the meaning of this name. It's in Exodus chapter 34. Just turn forward with me. I apologise that this series involves quite a lot of page turning, but uh, there's no way round it. This uh, is an event that uh, happens after Moses has led the people out of Egypt, and Moses, quite um, boldly, has asked to see God's glory. And God says he's not allowed to see his face. We already know why that is, because uh, uh, God doesn't reveal himself in pictorial ways. No, rather God declares his name and what it means. Chapter 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Here is God, you see, the loving, faithful God, maintaining love to thousands, he says. But there's an edge to him too. No guilty person will escape his judgment in any generation. That's what Yahweh means. It means he is the absolute sovereign who will be what he will be. And he has decided to make Promises, covenant promises to his people and he will stick by those in faithful love forever. But he is a holy God as well. Woe betide anyone who turns away from him because they will not go unpunished. That's what Moses saw then. We, though, as Christians, have a greater revelation still of God's character. We know God by a new name, Jesus. 
Jesus means Yahweh saves. His name is an amplification and a restatement of God's name. He is the Son of God. More than that, he is, he is God in the flesh. There's actually an amazing passage in uh, chapter 1 of John's Gospel which consciously uh, echoes uh, Exodus 34, that uh, revelation of God there, but now applies it to Jesus. John's Gospel is on page 1063. John tells us, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, from the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Remember, do you, that Moses uh, asked to see God's glory? Well, now in Jesus we have seen the glory of the one and only, says John. Remember, God declared himself to Moses to be full of love and faithfulness. Actually, the Greek version of the Old Testament translated that Grace and truth. Grace in the sense of unmerited love. Truth in the sense of absolute faithfulness to what he says and promises. But Jesus is now full of grace and truth. Indeed, says John, Moses saw nothing compared to what we have seen in Jesus. The law was given through Moses, he says, but grace and truth in its final form, in its fullest form, came through Jesus Christ. If you want to know God's name, says the Bible, it's Jesus. If you want to know God's character, look at Jesus. Jesus showed us God. Jesus was a man who, who cared with deep compassion for the lost and the needy and the marginalized. He was a man who, who loved people, who wept for them, who, who taught them how to live, who ultimately showed his love supremely by dying on the cross for them. But he was God. God made man. That is what God is like. You will not get a fuller understanding of the character of God other than in seeing and, and, and discovering Jesus as he's portrayed in the New Testament. But he was also a man with an edge to him too. Just as the God of the Old Testament was. He was quite prepared to warn self-righteous Pharisees that they were heading for hell. Eternal misery. He was quite prepared to say that he personally would condemn anyone who turned away from him. Away from me, I never knew you. Frighteningly, actually, Jesus mentions hell and condemnation 
more frequently than anyone else in the New Testament. But supremely, he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, made man. That is what God is like then. If you want to know what uh, uh, Moses is talking about as he uh, reminds them of this uh, third commandment, do not misuse the name, the character of the Lord your God. And you need to see those things. I am who I am. I am Jesus. So here's the key question then for this commandment. How do we then misuse his name? I want to suggest to you this morning that we, we as, a, as a society and sometimes as individuals, even in this room, misuse God's name in profound and tragic ways. Go far, far beyond the uh, idea that uh, it's bad to say, oh my God, when something goes wrong. We love to play around, actually, with what God might be like. It's, it's endemic to our society that, 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 that the reality is what I choose it to be. I'm the judge. I'm at the centre of my real world. And I will make judgments about what I think about God. Woe betide God if he tells me otherwise. There's a story about a rather cocky woman once who uh, uh, spoke to a, um, a well-known media pundit. Tell me, Mr. So-and-so, what do you think about God? And he said, Madam, it's always been much more my concern to know what God thinks of me. But we don't have that concern by and large. Many people, for instance, confidently say God is unknowable or virtually unknowable. How can someone who is as shy as God, they say, expect us to know, know all about him? But God is not shy, you see. I hope we've made that abundantly clear. God, him, God has revealed himself, his character, his personality in the, the Old Testament and to, to, uh, still in the New Testament. God is not a shy God. God is supremely a God who loves to communicate with us and tell us who he is, if only we would take it seriously. I think it's, um, I think it's Harrison Ford who tells the story about how a person came up to him and said, for a moment then I thought you were Harrison Ford, but now I see you're not. He's much more handsome than you are. Sometimes when we just don't think we're going to meet the person, we generate in our minds an image of what they're like. And when the real person steps into our world, we don't believe it's true. Sadly, so many people treat God like that. 
How could I ever actually come to know the real God, they say to themselves. The best thing I could do is, is generate a picture of what I think God ought to be like. And then, of course, when they uh, uh, read the New Testament, for a moment, they think, oh, maybe this is what God is like. And then they meet something that doesn't quite fit their model, what they hope he will be like. Rather than re-examine their preconceptions, we so easily actually just say, oh, well, it can't be true then. I'll stick with my reality. I prefer it to the real thing. Now, God is knowable. Do not hold that lightly. Another um, thing that people often say is surely all religions lead to God. Sadly, uh, in order to claim that, uh, people, uh, people have to dismiss the insights of all of those religions. It actually shows, I think, a deep disrespect and a degree of arrogance towards religions of all sorts to claim all religions lead to God. Because different religions of the world teach quite different things about God. People who say that all, all religions lead to God are actually saying, I know better than all religions, than the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Muslims, and the Christians. They all know a bit, but I can see the whole picture. Mahatma Gandhi is one of my great heroes of the 20th century. He was, he was a great man, but he was sadly misguided about religion. He used to say, I am a Christian, I am a Hindu, I am a Muslim. He cannot be. It is not possible to reconcile those different views without actually dismissing all of them. We're either one of those things or none of them. We can't be all of them. Some people who call themselves Christians have actually tried to claim that other religions are actually Christianity in disguise. But that dishonors other religions as well. It's a sign of, of, uh, of, of our respect for them, I think, that we should take seriously what they say. If they have dis, uh, discarded certain key truths of the Bible, it would be arrogant to, to, to paper over that and say, oh, well, you believe in the true God anyway. Now, it is a hard thing sometimes, but paradoxically, it's the most respectful thing to say to people, well, you have misunderstood what the real God is like because he has revealed himself in the pages of his word. Jesus was quite clear, anyone who is not for me is against me. We would be dishonouring those people and dishonouring Jesus if we denied it. Some people catch on to this dominant motif that uh, I hope came out very clearly about God's, uh, God's character, his love. And they say, surely that must mean that all people will be, sa be saved. Actually, more precisely, they uh, usually mean all people that I would like to see saved will be saved because uh, Adolf Hitler and the Washington sniper can go to the other place. Um, we don't mind that. 
What I want to make sure is that me and my friends get to heaven. I, just last night I heard an interview with, with some children and the interviewer asked, will all people go to heaven? Yes, came the confident reply. What about pets? Do they all go to heaven? No, said the little sage. Some of them get stuffed. <laughs> and some ways, I'd, I'd love it if that were true. Perhaps even the stuffed ones might get to heaven. But the Bible doesn't permit me to believe that. Jesus himself doesn't permit us to believe that. The Bible says very clearly we get what we chose in life. If we chose to know and love and seek forgiveness from the real God, then we will know and be loved and be forgiven by the real God in eternity. If we chose to follow an illusion, if we chose to make up our own God, if we chose to walk away from the real God, then we will get what we chose forever. He will walk away from us. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. He will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name who plays fast and loose with his character and manufactures a God that they like, he will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Actually, though, the strongest warnings in the Old and the New Testament are reserved for those who seem to honour God's name, for those who actually would say that they had a completely orthodox understanding of God and yet disobey him. They dishonour God by their lives. That's what Jesus was getting at, I think, in Matthew chapter 7 that Jeremy read to us some time ago. Turn with me to Matthew 7, the last place we're going. It's on page 972. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, these people, by their use of that repeated phrase, Lord, Lord, I suspect are echoing that great moment of revelation in Exodus 34. Where do you remember God passed in front of Moses and declared himself, the Lord, the Lord. They know the truth about 
God and Jesus. And they've also been very active on his behalf. They have prophesied in his name. They have driven out demons in his name. They have performed miracles in his name. His name has been on their lips regularly and to great effect. But actually, when we look closely at their lives, they don't humbly obey God at all. The fact that they claimed to act in the name of Jesus actually multiplied their guilt. One of Israel's greatest sins was that she brought disrepute on God's name amongst the nations because God's reputation rested on the nation of Israel and when she disobeyed him, the nations mocked God. Because of you, my name is profaned amongst the nations, God says again and again. Away from me, says Jesus. I never knew you. You have misused my name. Could that be said of us? Could that be said of you? You could. If you or I refuse to obey the real God, if we claim to be Christians here this morning, there is an even greater responsibility on us. Because God's reputation rests on our shoulders out there in the world when we leave this place. As we walk down the street, as we work with colleagues, as we, uh, as parents live with our children, as children bear witness to our parents, God's reputation is on our shoulders. They watch and make conclusions about the real God on the basis of what they see in us. If we are casually disobedient, if God is not real to us, God's instructions to us are not lived by us. And God's name will be profaned. And we will have misused the name of God. There is real forgiveness, you know. He is the compassionate and faithful God. The God who loves to see us come back and say, Lord, forgive me. But if we will not come back to the real God, then he will walk away from us. The Lord will not hold guiltless anyone who misuses his name.
First of all, perhaps you're conscious that there are aspects to God's character that you know are revealed in Scripture and yet you have dismissed. Perhaps it's time for you to turn to God and seek his forgiveness. Secondly, perhaps it's not so much that you deny God's character, but by our behavior, we deny him. Perhaps you need to pray about that. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, forgive us, we pray, for the many ways in which we fail you. And strengthen us to serve you. Give us more than anything else, Lord, a, a holy fear of treating you and your character lightly. Send us out from here, Lord, more aware of who you are more dedicated to serve you, more convinced that that is the only way that we will discover what we were made for. Please, Lord, be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name.